Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as a February room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite developments, fly rods, and fishing accessories. Tech. Precision. Ingenuity. Legacy. Go to cdfishing.us and follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Here's your host, Lauren Carnop, and this is The February Room. Alberta's Bow River is renowned for producing world-class angling and world-class anglers. One member of this club is guide, outfitter, Paula Shearer with PS on the Fly. Thank you so much for joining me today, Paula. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm excited to chat with you today. And you're my first Canadian on the podcast, and I can't wait to hear more about your home waters. But before we get into that, I'd love to hear a fishing story from you. Absolutely. I think there's a there's a good one considering it is has been uh, a year today. Um, and that was uh, last year, I flew to Cuba with Rio. Um, I was with Simon Gosworthy, David Riley and Sabrina Barnes. And as we flew to Cuba, we had no idea that COVID was about to take over the world. So when we got to Cuba, it was I think we got there about March 6th and for Canada's side there was one or two cases but it wasn't anything to worry about and on the state side was only a handful as well. So when we got to Cuba everything seemed all normal. We uh, actually got onto a boat and what's interesting is the Cubans they had their doctors come on and they actually had us all checked over to make sure we didn't have fevers, coughs, or anything like that. So as small as COVID was at the time, Cuba was still looking at it and still checking it out and making sure that we didn't have it. So we got onto this boat and we left port for the next seven days. And we had no cell reception, no internet. We were completely 100% off grid. And the only focus we had was, was to go fishing. So we had a great week of fishing. Um, the company is, as always, the, the kind of the best part when you go with a group. And we were going for tarpon, casting at permit, fishing for bones, jacks, you wow. name it. We had an entire week of, uh, of fishing. And interestingly enough, when we turned around and we're making our way back, I believe it was March 14th or so, 14th or 15th, we thought all was well in the world until I um, got back into reception because being the only Canadian, I was actually the only one that had um, 
a phone that was able to to have internet and call. So when I got back close to port, my phone blew up and I was getting messages like it's an apocalypse. Um, the world is shutting down. People are dying. Um, there is like you're gonna have to uh, quarantine, and I had no idea what was going on. Like I literally just got back into reception, and my entire phone just went nuts of people messaging me of just this horror event of an apocalypse. Um, so we did get back to port, and I think that's where kind of. Uh, the eye-opener of the next year came and um, yeah it was it was certainly something to be lucky because we got to go on this last trip but at the same time we we had to come back into uh, this new world of COVID. Did you have to quarantine when you came back? I did Um, I actually got to stay at um, I got to stay two extra days in Cuba because I had to stay at a a resort till my flight was going to take off and there was basically nobody on the resort. So I spent uh, two days on the empty beach enjoying the sun because I knew it was going to be the last time for quite a while heading up to Canada. Um, so I enjoyed the last two days. And then when I got um, back onto the plane, it was definitely a weird sense in the world to travel because you can tell a lot of people were afraid. Um, no one knows what's happening, really what's going on. Um, people were wearing masks, people were like, don't touch your face. And the same thing for me was like, wear your buff and don't touch your face. Like the big thing was just yeah. don't touch your face and, and stuff like that. And um, flying back to um, one of the Canadian international airports is, is kind of where reality set in because I literally saw people flying in hazmat suits. Like, uh, like people were wearing gloves and it was a it was actually a really weird sense of time of like not knowing what the world was going to happen at that time and knowing that as soon as I get back I have to quarantine for 2 weeks and avoid all my friends and family so what an adjustment going from like probably one of the most memorable trips ever catching bonefish catching permit and going straight to just having to be in a room like at least you could have looked at your phones like last week I was on this amazing, amazing ocean and saw some blue, blue skies to having to be kind of quarantined. It, it did. It seemed like for a lot of people, it just took a hard right turn where it was like, hey, what do you what are your thoughts on COVID? I, I mean, I remember my girlfriend just and I driving, like talking about COVID. And then literally three days later, everything, you know, stopped and it was like wear face mask. And it didn't seem like a gradual, you know, like all of a sudden it was like, do not touch your face, do not go outside. And it was a really scary moment, I think, for everybody. But I couldn't imagine going internationally and then trying to get back home. Yeah, I think the big thing was just having no idea about it. Like, um, it was just something that was like, oh, one or two people in the States, I think, had it. Or I think Canada had like two people. And you, you kind of just thought, oh, it's it's whatever it is. It's, it'll go away. It's not going to be a big deal. And then you're gone for an entire week with no no news and you come back and people are dying and the world's like shut down and you're like what did I miss and can I please just stay on the boat and turn around and go back (laughs) yeah like just leave me on the boat I'll be fine um but yeah no I mean very sad and horrible because I mean obviously a lot of people lives have been lost and uh livelihoods too and yeah I I hope that here soon with everything that's coming out with vaccines that we can kind of get to a more normalcy um slowly but surely I'm hoping fingers crossed um well before we kind of I would love to hear more about Alberta because we were talking earlier which is hilarious even though I live in Missoula Montana and I'm only about probably four hours from the Canadian border I've never been to Canada and I don't have a record (laughs) we're not scary I promise you we're we're not scary people up here well and it's so beautiful I was like looking at the pictures looking at the Bow River and I would just love to hear a little bit more about your home waters yes absolutely so we kind of have two main systems that we kind of um, fish at least I do um, as well as guide Um, We have the Bow River, which is kind of a world-renowned river. It's kind of known for its quality of fish versus its quantity. It still has good quantity, but definitely the quality is is something that 
um, is, is quite well known for. And what's interesting is it does run right through the city of Calgary, which I believe is 1.4 million people. I think, give or take uh, an amount there, but it, it runs through a big city and then exits out um, and heads up to North East Canada, up to Hudson's Bay is actually where part of the boat river ends when it joins up with some other things. So we usually when we fish there, um, I do a lot of guiding on the drift boat with that. We target um, big browns and rainbows. And then when um, we kind of get away from the Bow River, we start to head west into the mountains. And when we get to the mountains, we have lots of smaller streams that kind of have the um, bull trout and the cutthroat trout. And depending where you want to go, there's usually about five main rivers that you can kind of go shuffle up and down from and go into its tributaries to kind of target um, those fish. So those are probably the, the two most known areas is the Bow River and then our western um, cutthroat streams. And so for me, I, I guide the bow and then I also take clients into the mountains and do walk in waves and hikes for, uh, for cutthroat and the occasional bull trout. Oh my gosh, I would absolutely love that. Like I love hiking and I love fishing. So for me, it's more about the adventure. So to be able to kind of get a little bit of cardio in there as well. There's lots of cardio. Yep, definitely lots of cardio. Absolutely. Have you ever had any experiences where the bull trout, like you've had a fish on and a bull trout comes in and attacks one of the fish? That's actually really common. So it's not something that happens once or twice. I've had it happen a ton like it's really I get it happen a couple times a year if you're in an area where where there's a bull trout around and you have a cutthroat and you're let's just say you're fishing for cutthroat um it, quite often um a bull will come in and, and attack a, a cutty it doesn't always get the cutty and take it but it definitely um clenches onto it and um and gives it a good pull so for me usually that happens a few times a year and I've actually landed a really big bull. I think it was probably 32 inch bull um, that actually ate the small cutty I had. Like, I don't know how I managed to land it because I had um, fished for a cutthroat with a dry fly and it was just a small like 10 inch cutty. Like it was a, a little guy and uh, this bull came in, latched onto it and I kind of was like, okay, that's the end of this, this fight kind of thing. And didn't expect to land it. I didn't expect um, it to happen, but the hook, when it ate the cutty, somehow got caught, like hooked in the mouth. So I ended up putting this bull in the mouth, even though it ate the cutty. And I ended up uh, landing this uh, this really big bull, which is actually pretty cool. It's kind of a, it's it's kind of neat to, to think that bulls kind of rule the, the territory when it comes to uh, certain certain rivers and stuff like that. Well, that's amazing that you get that opportunity to have uh, bull trouts do that so often. I mean, we do have bull trouts here on our rivers, but um, it doesn't very, happen very often that, you know, when you catch a fish. But um, it almost seems like it's a luck, like a lucky thing to happen. The fact that you get to even land one is even more amazing. Yeah, it doesn't. You don't normally land them. Like I said, it's that's, it, that's the rare part, uh, part. It definitely we definitely see it a lot. Um, I've actually had bull trout beach themselves because I netted the cutty and it came in and charged at the net, which is in the water with the cutty so hard that it actually beached itself up onto the, the bank. So we actually, like me and my friends have to like, it, like push the bull trout back into the water just because it's so opportunistic at trying to get the cutty that it just, it just charged at it, um, and ended up beaching itself insane that is so insane are the rivers like pretty pop like i guess are a lot of anglers um on the river at the same time as you or is it pretty much kind of like spaced out well the one thing i've noticed um with the, the the covid world is definitely an uptake of um anglers in our fisheries um whether they're new anglers or they're anglers that just can't um travel i think that might be one of the, the main things as well because no one can travel um, we've definitely had um, a lot more anglers on the rivers. So for us, when it comes to the, the mountain streams, you you really have to hike back and kind of get to that, that water where you can kind of get away from people. And personally, that's, I, I love people by all means, but I, I like fishing in my own, my own area. And I really take joy in um, kind of that um, 
that solitude with just my friends and, and in the area. So there, it's, it's getting a little bit busy um, in some rivers, uh, certain rivers more than others. Um, but certainly, if you work hard enough and you hike far enough back in the mountains, you can definitely get away from people. And then when it comes to the boat, uh, there's quite a few boats as well. But to be honest, I found uh, I found last year not that bad for, for boats. I think a lot of people headed to the mountains and um, didn't fish the boat as much. So I didn't find the boat super, super busy last year. Okay, so like when you say you go like up to the mountains, like are these just like like uh, mountain river streams that you're fishing, or are yeah. they part of? Okay. So what's interesting about Alberta for those who haven't been to Alberta, um, one of the best ways I can kind of describe Alberta is we're quite identical to Colorado. Um, okay. Denver, Colorado, and Calgary are pretty similar actually like the mountains are right right there the prairies are to the east you have the foothills so um for those who haven't been to alberta but and are wondering what it kind of looks like um if you've been to denver colorado or colorado we're, we're very similar in in landscaping so those mountain streams and those um that you fish those are very similar to those ones oh as well oh my gosh well beautiful i'm actually born and raised in colorado springs i never went fishing though in denver like in colorado springs i kind of grew up learning fly fishing later in life here in missoula after my husband being a fishing guide kind of threw the fly rod in my hand in the beginning i just was awful and it was not enjoyable i was like gosh like how do people like fly fishing i think as you get older you kind of get set in the ways of the things that you enjoy and so um, for me fly fishing kind of became a passion a little bit later in life and i kind of had to keep getting better at it because i think it's my compet i'm super competitive so if i don't like get things right away i get frustrated i'm like wow i'm not going to do this again and um Fly fishing is a very patient sport and you, you you can't, I don't know one person that's like picks up a fly rod and it's like, wow, you, you've done this all your life. And it's, um, it's a really hard sport. So, I mean, you though, on the other hand, you grew up fly fishing. I did grow up. Yep. I grew up fly fishing from a young age, but I also have an athletic background, um, a pretty competitive athletic background. So for me, I grew up fly fishing as a kid and I, I still fished in high school and stuff like that, but my kind of friends were definitely not the outdoorsy friends. So um, rather than go to some of like the parties or like out for like girls night and stuff like that, sometimes I would be like, I can't. And I would kind of like secretly go fishing. Um, so yeah, I started fly fishing probably before I was eight, but it was just mostly trolling flies in the lakes of BC. And then by the time I was um, eight, um, there were some dry flies coming off on the lake, and I asked my dad to teach me the basics of casting. I can't imagine I was really pretty at it. Um, lots of tangles, of course, but over time I got better. And then by the time I was 11, I ended up uh, rowing myself out into the lakes to fish alone. And um, yeah, it kind of grew from there. And so I, I did a lot of fly fishing by myself um, in my teen years. Um, and then I ended up, um, I ended up continuing to fly fish into now where, um, it, it's what I do, do for a living, but it, it definitely came, um, from like sports. Like I, I, I wasn't ath like I was an athlete. I did, um, a skeleton for, for team Canada and was, uh, um, high caliber goalie for like hockey and, and ringette wow. like that. So I feel like for me, fly fishing, as competitive as I was in sports, uh, for me, fly fishing was the one thing that I could step away from my training six days a week, six hours a day, and step away for a few hours and go fly fishing and, and escape that, that full-time um, athlete life. But at the same time, being an athlete, I think, has also been the reason why um, I've always strived to be better, but I've never strived to be better than other people. I just strive to be better for myself personally. Like I think as a person, I can always continue to grow and be better. So the only competition I have in fly fishing is with myself. And now a brief message from our sponsors. Here at CDUSA, we have owned nearly every brand of fly rod throughout our 30-year careers as guides and globetrotting anglers. When we discovered Composite Development's flagship fly rods, the XL2 and the ICT2, we uncovered a secret harbored by the Kiwis for four decades. 
Born from Japanese Torei, CD's unique manufacturing process involves winding the graphite fibers inside the blank, negating heavy thread wraps at the end of each section, creating a lighter and more durable fly rod. Check out the XLS2 and the ICT2 at your local CD USA dealer or go to cd-fishing.us and remember to go fishing. Um, I love it. You said skeleton? Yeah. Isn't that, that's like the bobsledding, right? Like it's super dangerous. So bobsled is the one where you have um, two to four people inside the bobsled. Yes. Um, And then luge is where you have a um, person feet first on a sled. And then skeleton is where you have a person head first on a sled. So yeah, I did, um, I did skeleton for, uh, for team Canada. And my goal was to, to make the Olympics. Um, but I had to, to quit all my, um, athletic sports due to too many head injuries. Oh my gosh. I mean, cause because of the skeleton, you've like fallen off the skeleton and like hit the side of the, what do you call that when you kind of shoot down the track? Yeah. But it's actually not so much that way. So I am, I have had lots of concussions in, um, lacrosse. Like I played, um, box lacrosse, so like full contact indoor lacrosse. And then I played like hockey and ringette. But what it came down to for the uh, the head injuries and stuff in, in skeleton wasn't so much of like crashes, because I actually didn't crash that much, thankfully. Um, crashes do hurt though. But yeah. most of them was when you go down the track, you get that shaken, I don't want to say like that shaken baby syndrome, but like it, that's kind of what it is, the vibrations. When you go down the track, because we don't have shocks and, and the track isn't like... Um, a skating rink flat like it's got bumps and divots and and as you're going 70 miles an hour 60 miles an an hour down the track you get a lot of vibrations and since your head is only less than an inch from the ice you get a lot of that vibrations which in turn is gives you micro concussions so um, over time hundreds of micro concussions uh, don't do good for the for the head so um, yeah, for me, it's it's now stay away from all contact sports and anything that can that can bother my my head too much. Well, I think you found the right career with uh, fishing because I don't yes. think you're gonna be doing any, yes. any head concussions. Hopefully not. No, no slipping on the water. No or the rocks. Occasionally, there are some slips and slides, but uh, I try and keep this this noggin uh, in good shape now. So, when did it come from like just a passion to being like, you know what, I'm gonna be a guide outfitter. I actually have this one day that it actually came, like I decided, and it was actually a friend of mine who did skeleton as well. And she she was also suffering from um, post-concussion syndrome. And she asked me if I could take her out to f- like fishing and, and teach her so that she could get out of the house because um, anyone who's had post-concussion syndrome know, knows that it can be a little bit of a long journey. And... So I took her out, I put her in my waders, and we got her into fish. And I just remember, you know, like, I've put a lot of people into fish, even when I wasn't guiding, I've taken my friends. But it was kind of this exact day that um, I kind of thought, you know what, my friends are guides, I really want to do this. Like, I love putting people into fish. Like, I love being a part of people's good memories. And so for me, it kind of was like that aha moment of like, okay, you've, you've taken lots of friends out fishing and family and stuff, but you have friends that do this as a career and why don't you, because this is what you enjoy doing and this is what you love. So it was that exact moment that, um, I said, okay, that's, that's it. I'm actually going to, I'm going to work hard to, to be a guide. Um, I got, Um, lots of information and mentored by a lot of great friends of mine who were guides and owned outfitters as well Um, so they kind of over the years we've all taken each other under the wing kind of thing and I learned a lot from them and I spent an extra year if not longer really trying to perfect being a guide because for me being a guide isn't just being a guide and I didn't want to start into guiding being that that 
on the bottom, like, oh, that's the new guide, mm-hmm. like kind of thing. I really wanted to at least start in the middle of the pack when it comes to knowledge, experience, and being confident that my clients are going to have a fantastic day. So I actually took extra time just perfecting my skills because, like I said, for me, it's it's I'm not in a competition with anyone else. I made it with myself to to be better so I could be better for my clients. And so from that moment, I kind of worked on what I needed to do. And eventually uh, I got into guiding and now I own my own outfitting business. And a very successful one. Was there any, what was like the biggest challenge for you making the jump from um, being an angler to a guide? I think a lot of people don't discuss how mentally challenging being a guide can be. It's easy to put people into fish if you know how to get people into fish. Um, If you know all about the entomology and you know how to catch catch fish, you should be able to put clients. But just because you can catch fish doesn't necessarily mean you can get other people to catch fish. Like there there is definitely a skill involved because I can catch fish, but my client's skills may not be my skills and I need to find the skills in order to get them into fish. So for me, the first couple of years of guiding was really um, a mental one. And I put myself really high standards, uh, probably standards that are a little too hard. But um, I found that I was making the expectation higher for myself when, in fact, the clients were not. My expectations were way higher than they were. They were having phenomenal days. And I was thinking in my head, oh, this could have been better. This could be they could have caught more fish. They could have caught bigger fish. But I, I had to step outside my my own uh, mental challenges um, and frustration and realize my expectations are not the client's expectations. And once I learned that, um, it's really, it's gone a long ways when it comes to guiding. I mean, I think that's like a huge, amazing kudos to you for really taking the extra steps. And also, you know, I have to say, I was watching your video about going out fishing in the cold. And I love that you gave tips on how to stay safe because it can be dangerous out there if you don't know what you're doing. What's actually really sad is that the tips I, um, I, I put out uh, a few weeks ago, it was the next day we actually had a fatality in the river. And three days later, we had <sighs> another one. No, no. Yeah, Do so they know what they happened? They weren't anglers. I will say they were, they weren't anglers, but it, it it was it's really sad because I think, you know, like whether you're an angler or not, you you have to you really have to be aware of the the ice and the potential of the dangerous stuff. And I think for me, one of the reasons why I did it is we've seen some people promote unsafe um fishing in the sense of being on ice that they shouldn't and Unfortunately, young people are watching these and following these. And as as any angler um, who's has any experience or, or does things safely should realize that there are people watching you. And um, I don't want to do things that other people will watch me and do if it's unsafe. You know, I think it's pros and cons to social media, right? You see people catching fish and it's cold and you're thinking, wow, I'm kind of a novice at this. Let me get out there and there's so it's still mother nature you're going against and you're, you know, you never, you can't predict what mother nature is going to do. And you can't predict that, you know, how thick ice is going to be. And that's just terrifying mm-hmm. that that's happened in Alberta. I've had friends like thankfully nothing's happened to them. Like literally gone, broke through the ice right through the middle. And luckily their, their like hip pack kept them up on top that they could climb out or we've, uh, we're broke off and, Luckily, someone was there to kind of guide their buddy down and, and get him out. So I think the main thing I had in one of the, the main fishing tips was no matter where you go, and this is the same thing, it doesn't apply to even being on ice, is where's a safe place to get out if you were to go in? So no matter what I like, where I am, whether it's mountain streams, whether it's a bow, if I were to fall in, I'm always mentally in my head thinking about where can I safely get out? If it's a fast section, okay, I can get down. If I go down that area, I can get out there. Or if things happen on the mountains and I slip, where can I can I get out? Because sometimes those mountain streams um, can be a little bit faster water and, and there isn't as many some 
places to get out in some places. So um, whether it be ice or whether it just be in general is just mentally keep an eye out on a place that you could safely get out. And of course, um, safely net fish and handle them. Yep. I mean, I actually think about that all the time and also about bears. I always think as I'm casting, I'm like, okay, a black bear comes over to the left side. What do you do? And I'm like, and I'll grab my bear spray. I'm like, okay, make sure you know where the lever is. And um, like you said, I mean, you just don't, you really have to understand where your surroundings are and to think that maybe the worst case scenario, how would you survive those situations? So I thought that was super helpful. I love bears, by the way. We're around them a lot. Oh, have you ever had a bear encounter up there? Tons. Every couple of Every year I get a few. Are you nervous? Are you like, is it black bear or grizzly bear? Grizzlies. Oh my gosh. That's even, see, that's terrifying. What do you, or do they just not even bother you? Or are they just like, hello? We, same thing. We, we are smart about it. Um, we try to do, do what we can. Um, I was actually taking a friend of mine. Her name's Brigitte fishing. Um, I don't know how old she is. I love this lady dearly. She's amazing. I've kind of taken her under my wing for quite a few years. She's got to be in her mid to late seventies at least. Um, and I was going down to this area and I know that there's a lot of uh, grizzlies in this area. So I was kind of telling like Brigitte, like when we go down, you know, like we have our bear spray, we just got to know where it is, make sure it's accessible. And I was kind of giving her the, the steps, like, if you, you take out the bear spray, you immediately take off the safety kind of thing. You're going to back up. And I was kind of giving her um, just a little bit of details just in case. We end up walking down um, to the lake. We turn the corner and there are two tiny cubs. <laughs> and there's Mama and there's Mama Grizzly. Yep, Mama Grizzly's right there, like probably 40 feet from us, if that. Um, if that. And uh, she was just eating the willows and her two little cubs are just running back and forth. And so I was like, okay, Brigitte. So I had took out the bear spray. I said, hey, mama, like, you know, like we're here. And uh, we, uh, we proceeded to just bear spray out and walk backwards. Don't turn our backs to the bear and just kind of slowly went out. Luckily, mama was pretty chill eating the willows. But um, yeah, I've had a few follow me. I've had a f- we had one meet us at our truck before um, when we were fishing under a full moon. So there's definitely uh, definitely been some fun fun ones for sure. I just don't like the cougars. The cougars. I, I always think of cougars because I'll be like running on a trail, or like a mountain trail. And I always think, you know, I've watched this one episode. Like I didn't know it was coming or it was one of those series. And it was like this runner that was running. And she's like, the entire time I was running, I, I knew something was following me. I could feel like some eyes on me. And I always think about that. Every time I run out in the woods, I'm always like, I think about that that series about this girl being attacked by a cougar. Um, and I was like, how do you stop a cougar? You don't even know. They're cats. They're going to just like sneak They're up cats, on you. Yeah. I don't like them. I've had one that freaked me out. And uh, it was once again, nighttime. And we were hiking down from an alpine lake and we were getting down. And my friends are a little bit ahead of me. And I was like, I'm totally being watched. Like you just, every once in a while I could hear just the tiniest of sound, not like a crunch, but just something, just something behind me. And I turn around and look back and there's two eyes looking at me and, uh, or yeah, like a pair of eyes looking at me. And it was a cougar and I had had to like throw rocks and my friend, I'm like, called my friend and I was like, hey, like it's right there. Like, and he's like, oh yeah, like we, it's right there and it's dark. So we started throwing rocks at it to spook it off. But yeah, I definitely don't like, I just don't like cougars. Yeah. I don't like throwing rocks, having to throw rocks at cougars. Those are the ones I really don't like. Bears, bears, I can do what I can do what I can by letting the bear know I'm there. Um, we're super bear aware in the mountains here. Uh, constantly yelling to let the bears know we're looking for tracks. We're looking like that smell. Yes. We're, we're definitely aware because we can... You don't always know, but you can kind of tell if they're if they're around. So we're definitely cautious of bears and and definitely let them know we're there. But when it comes to cougars, I really don't like throwing rocks at them because I really don't like cougars. Have you ever? Do you have wolves up in Alberta? Yeah. Do you see them? Um, we don't see them often. I have actually 
Um, when I was fishing in BC once, I had a pack of wolves just walk right by me, which was so cool. Like it was a moment, like they weren't, like there was, there was no fear for me or them, um, or, or we were my friends too. They just literally looked at us like and continued walking. And it was like one of the most amazing moments because I made like eye contact and I was close and it just looked and it just continued on. Wow, how cool to see that in their natural habitat. That's like such a rare sight. Yeah, wolves are, just, wolves are super rare, yeah. Well, and hopefully Willow, your dog, if, if they are around, they'll just think like, hey, she's already got her own pack. Um, how is it fishing with your dog on the boat? Because I know for me, when we have our two dogs on our boat, they're always stepping in my line, but Willow seems like she kind of knows the deal. Yeah, Willow's actually really good. So I don't take her in the drift boat as as often um just because it's it's a little bit crowded and if you're in a drift boat we're kind of staying in the drift boat for the day so if i have two friends because i don't take her when i'm guiding but um i have two friends with me sometimes i'll take her sometimes if she has a, a spot or if there's just one other person i'm with then she has her her own spot but the big one with her is i take her on my water master a ton and she's so good on the water she'll just sit there I can row, um, we'll pull over and fish, and she just jumps off and, and, and does her own thing. She's really good because she's she is an independent dog in the sense that I don't have to, like, constantly be watching her. Uh, she won't run off. Like, that's the nice thing. She won't run off. She'll just kind of wander around, and she likes to look and hunt for mice and, and stuff like that. And um, she's independent in the sense that I don't have to – pay attention to her all the time because she's <laughs> off just doing her little thing and and at the same time she won't run she won't run away and when I jump back into my water master she uh, jumps back onto the back of the boat because she doesn't want to get left behind and and off she goes so yeah she's really good when it comes to the water master and I've just basically trained her from from just a pup whether it's uh, being on the boat or just being around animals um, she knows really not to not to chase anything um, and if something comes by, she kind of stays close, uh, which is nice. Other than mice, she will, <laughs> if you're a mouse, she is going to get you or try and go after you. Every other animal she's pretty good with, other than uh, some birds. Oh, nothing worse when your dog comes up and there's like a little tail hanging on the side of their mouth. I'm like, nope, nope, cannot do it. But yeah, we have a Brittany Poodle mix. And I remember we went fishing and I swear every time I take my fly line on the ground, She's like, I'm going to step on this one and then I'm going to take my right foot and put my tail through this. And she is just knotted up. And I remember one time I was, we did like a camping trip and we hiked up in the mountains and I put my fire on and I took one cast and I, I set the hook. And I think I just probably thought it was going to be, I just set the hook way too hard. It was like a small little bow. It was like, you know tiny maybe two inches and the thing goes flying and then ben as her name comes in i was like oh my gosh like i'm never taking you fishing ever again that was the most miserable experience with your flies the fly being tied all around her then the fish was going to be injured i was like oh, that was an exhausting day how is day. she now is she better <laughs> no every time i even put the fly rod on she thinks well, and she's also a bird dog. So I think what she's thinking, my husband's been teaching her to point. And so he'll take a fly rod and grab a pheasant wing and put it at the end of the fly line. So when he's teaching her to, you know, to point. So I think she's now considered the fly rod to be um, a bird wing. So she thinks it's time for her to go out there and start pointing at the fly rod. Anyways, it's a dis we didn't. Are Britons pointers or are they flushers? They're pointers. Willow's, um, she's trained, Willow and her brother Riley are both trained for, um, for birds as well, and um, they're flushers. Did you guys have this successful year this year? I don't, even though I have my hunting license and everything, I don't really hunt, but um, my dad goes on these hunting trips and, and takes them. And yeah, they had, uh, they had some good years, brought home some pheasant, and the dogs were pretty happy, other than the burrs. We all know oh, the burr situation. It is so bad. Well, and like I said, we got this Brittany poodle mix because of the, as I've gotten older, my allergies have gotten worse. And so she's got like that poodle kind of hair, and she comes back, and I'm just the burrs are everywhere under the armpits and her ears. And it's like, I mean, it's actually a pain in the butt because then you're spending more time grooming them than actually the time they probably went out in the woods. 
They had a bad experience. Yeah, Willow and Riley had a really, really, really bad experience this fall. And and my dad drove back. He was out, I think it was four hours away. And he had to, he just drove back from his trip because they were armored. Like I've never, (laughs) there was no no hair. It was just an armor. And it took each dog, I think. uh, I think I worked on Willow and it worked over three hours. Like we, you couldn't, we tried to even get the clippers you couldn't even get the clippers through. Oh, and especially like under their chest, like on their chest, under like their arms. Yeah. That's like the worst spot to ever have to deal with even dogs. Even with the vest they got in, like they had vests on and it got down into the vest and they were, they couldn't, the dogs couldn't move. Like they couldn't, like they couldn't move their legs. Like they were literally armored. And it's even worse if they came back and they didn't even see any birds. So all you did was get a bunch of burrs. <laughs> You're like, that did, that did not make any sense. Um, yeah, exactly. So what kind of flies are the, are really successful on the bow river? Um, I feel like f- flies are, are kind of like what you have confidence. I think almost any fly will work if you have confidence, but I certainly have a, a couple that are kind of my go-to I'm a I'm a big fan of the the baby Ganga by the Charlie Craven. I don't it's it's not that it's a very special fly or anything like that. For me, I just do a lot of um, trout spay, so a lot of swinging flies. And just based on my confidence, I've caught uh, some really really nice rainbows and browns off this fly. So for me, it's just kind of like a, a go to because I've just just because of that confidence kind of thing with it and having some really nice success with it with some rainbows and browns but I also like the good old sparkle minnows when it comes to streamer fishing out of the boat um the stonefly like the what is it the henry's fork stone and stuff like that so for me I feel like I shuffle through through my favorite fly it should be like my favorite fly of the week almost but uh definitely some go-tos are that that baby ganga and uh, that sparkle minnow for sure Oh, I love seeing a streamer in the water too. Like when you can see the flashaboo kind of going through and the water hits it. I mean, I've never had any luck where a fish actually ate it, but I still like seeing it in the water. <laughs> Maybe I need to go up to Alberta and go with you. <laughs> yeah, the flies are for the angler. Yeah. Whatever looks pretty to us, we're like, ooh, bright, shiny, like this. We're kind of like ravens that way. Like, and then we're like, oh, let's put that in. And then the fish still happens to eat it. And so we're like, ooh, really like this fly. That's kind of how I look at it. Oh, I know. We'll have like our fly box and Justin will open it. He's like, so which one do you want to do? Like, which one do you want to pick? And inevitably, I will always choose one that has a little bit of flashaboo. And then he just picks like kind of like just a regular green and olive. And he gets so many bites. And I'm like, well, maybe I need to switch my tactic. But I just really love the look of this fly. Um I would love to hear um, also just another story about maybe some mountain river, um, something a little bit more of your home waters. Yeah, um, I have I have some amazing clients when it comes to guiding. I feel super fortunate because I have a I kind of have a seventy five percent rebook rate. So anyone who books me generally books again within the next year or two, and so I've really been able to to connect with with my clients and and. Like I know them so well and they're just such great people. But there's one that I think was about, was it, I think it was two years ago now. Yes, I think that's right. Cause um, I have a father and son duo and I've had them a few times. The uh, The father lives in Montana. Um, I think he lives in Whitefish. I believe he lives in Whitefish and he used to be a guide and he's got to be in his, his eighties and um, his um, his son, um, who's the main client of mine, he he lives in Calgary, and um, he's he's got a couple adult kids too. So when I've taken them out, I've always had good days with them. Like we've always had fantastic days, and it's always been like a father and, and son duo. And this, like I said, this fellow's got to be early eighties, and there's something so amazing to see somebody who who just gets out at that age and goes fishing and catches fish. But two years ago, I had them again. Um, and unfortunately, as what happens when people get older, their, their age, with age, they, their health kind of deteriorates. And um, it was kind of one of those days where we kind of knew that this was 
this is probably going to be the last time that he was going to get to go go fishing, especially with me or and with his son um, in my boat kind of thing. And so it's I think it's kind of one of those things where I just want to give someone the best day possible, especially when I kind of know that like how important this day is. Like it's, it really is about this father and son's experience. So we went out um, and fishing and it was early spring and sometimes the fishing cannot be um, that great. It's very hit and miss. The rainbows are off in um, another river spawning uh, and the, that river's closed. So um, usually it's just kind of the browns and the rainbows that aren't spawning that are hanging around. So I kind of let them know then it was uh, that it's probably going to be a little bit of a slower day. It's spring, the rainbows are off um, doing their thing in another river but we're gonna give it a good go. And so uh, we went out and we ended up having a fantastic day. Like it really was about giving him the best experience possible. And like I said, he could barely barely walk. He no longer could, could stand up. So everything he did was um, fishing, sitting down. And I think that day he hooked five or six really nice browns like it was it was a really good day like he and just to see the look on his face and the joy and the happiness from his son being able to be there with him and knowing that you know like this might be one of the last times and it was it was a good one and um yeah like I said for me that one really stands out because I can see that in the future with like my dad and my family members, you know, like when they get to that age, yeah. there's going to be that one day that, you know, like that will be their last time that they can, they can fish. And, um, I can just hope that, uh, it's spent with family. Like, and it was, like I said, I could just totally relate to that in the future and just being a part of, of one of those, those last fishing memories with him and his dad meant the world to me. Oh my gosh. I mean, you kind of just hit home there. Um, my husband's, um, dad, my father-in-law, um, they went to Guatemala and went, um, sail fishing and, um, and that trip Dennis is his name wasn't doing really well. And, um, but he had an amazing time caught fish of a lifetime for him and was with his son and with a couple other buddies. And, um, as soon as they came back, he was diagnosed with dementia And then that was the last time he went fishing. And then a year later, he passed away. And it's almost ironic that the last thing that Dennis was able to do was to go to um, to go fishing with his son in Guatemala. And, um, you know, I think that's how we'd all like to spend our last memories is with friends and family and doing the things that we love. So yeah, that's, that's a great story. And you brought that together and that's going to be a memory that they have forever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said, it's, I, I just feel grateful to be, to contribute to some of uh, people's best memories. I think that's being a guide isn't about always putting people in the most fish. It's about giving people a great day. And I didn't necessarily become a guide to, to put people on fish. Um, I, I do that as well, but it's, it's to contribute to people's memories. I think that when it comes down to it on the, on the days that are tough, um, tough fishing and you're working with clients just to get a few in the boat kind of thing. I think being able to be a part of some of their best memories and with whether it be friends, father, sons, husband, wives, father, daughter, like you name it, all those, just being a part of that and and having people tell the story about the fish that you helped them get, for me, is worth a million dollars. 100%. I love that. Well, if people want to continue on sharing, um, creating some new memories with you and um, what's the best method for them to get a hold of you? Um, the best way to to get a hold of me is definitely go through my website. Um, it is www.psonthefly.com. It's my guiding website, but on the bottom it also has my email. And whether you're looking to book a guided trip, um, if you are someone that is looking, um, I highly recommend uh, booking as early or as soon as you can, or even a year in advance. Um, but also, if, if you're just looking for information and stuff, you can certainly email me. 
Um, or you can also reach me at my Instagram account, which is just my name, Paula Shearer, on Instagram. And um, if you're looking on Facebook, once again, it's just PS on the fly. So those are the, the best and easiest ways to, to kind of reach me. Well, and you have such great content on your Instagram account. And I have to laugh because you have so many followers. I was telling Jess and I was like, Paula could be walking around Missoula and she probably, of all the people that are following her, the population of Missoula, like you could be walking around be like, oh, there's a follower. There's a follower. Do you have a lot of people who are like, hey, Paula, it's nice to see you. And you're like, oh, how do they know me? But they're just like, know you via Instagram. It it does. It does. It does happen. Um, and um, like I said, I'm just, I'm super grateful that um, people are just interested in, in what I do. Um by all means, I've I've never gone on Instagram to to do more, be more than anything that I am, and um, and the fact that uh, people follow and, and and like to to see what I get to do for me is just a it, it is such an eye opener because it's I just never I just never expected it, and I'm I'm super thankful and grateful um, and humbled by by those who who like to follow. Um, along with what I do. Well, it's been a great pleasure talking with you today, Paula, and I really appreciate you taking the time today to talk with me. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate talking with you guys. And uh, I think it's it, once the borders open up, which I'm hoping is quite soon, um, I think you should plan a trip up to Canada. I'm told we're quite welcoming. We're pretty good up here. <laughs> you know it. I'm going to I'm going to like book a trip with a PS on the fly and I'll be like, see, I came to Canada. I finally made it to Canada. Cause if I'm going to go to Canada, I'm going to be like, make it big. I'm going to like, like bells and whistle. Like here comes Lauren Carnot. She's going fishing. <laughs> there you go. There's, there's lots of places and um, a lot of people like to check out Banff as well. So there's, there's lots of places to go and, and people to see and uh, definitely no shortage of, uh, of beautiful scenery here. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spend, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.